1: and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com, who are also producers of EWTN's Living Right with Dr. Ray Garendi.
0: To Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host, on this fifth Sunday of the Great Fast, the fifth Sunday of Lent, according to the Gregorian calendar and the, more specifically the Byzantine liturgical calendar that follows the Gregorian calendar. Today is the fifth Sunday of the Great Fast, also called the Sunday of Mary of Egypt, Venerable Mary of Egypt. Now, last Sunday we looked at St. John Climacus, so we had a male and a female ascetic. In other words, someone who lived in the desert and did great penance, and they're put before our eyes because they were examples of precisely what we are doing during the great fast, that is, the ascetical disciplines leading to a greater purity of heart, a greater purity of our whole person, mind, body, soul, spirit, and ultimately to being a person of love, a person who loves God ever more and loves one another ever more deeply as well, loves all of life, in fact. It's an entire transformation, this wonderful period of the great fast. That's why we call it the bright sadness. See, we have the that both and, so characteristic of the Eastern churches, the both and spirituality. Something is two things or two complementary or even sometimes opposite things that coexist together, We sort of live in that intersection. So we have the sadness because we have been focusing on our repentance, being honest about our own sinfulness and our need for repentance. But then at the same time, That helps us to become more whole, more human, more pure, more loving, more Christ-like. And that, of course, is a reason for brightness or joy. So it's the bright sadness of Lent. St. Mary of Egypt is mentioned during the great can of St. Andrew of Crete. Her story is read, but we commemorate her liturgically on Sunday, this fifth Sunday of Lent. And again, we're going to refer to what has been our guidebook through Lent. That is the Lenten Trodian, translated from the original Greek by Mother Mary and Archimandrite Callistus Ware, published by Faber and Faber out of London and Boston, 1978. I'm not even sure if this book is still in print. It might be, or maybe it's reprinted, but it is a real gem. It's a classic, classic. The guy that I always pull out, and I use it as a guide for all of you as well. During this fifth Sunday of Lent, the Lenten Trojan says this, this corresponds closely to the preceding Sunday, just as the fourth Sunday is dedicated to St. John Climacus, the model of ascetic, so the fifth celebrates St. Mary of Egypt, the model of penitence. Like that of St. John Climacus, her feast has been transferred from the fixed calendar, where she is commemorated on April 1st, her life recounted by St. Sophronius, patriarch of Jerusalem. It is read, as we have mentioned, on Thursday in the fifth week. It sets before us a true verbal icon of the essence of repentance. In her youth, St. Mary lived in a dissolute and sinful way at Alexandria. And drawn by curiosity, she journeyed with some pilgrims to Jerusalem, arriving in time for the feast of the exaltation of the cross. But when she tried to enter the church of the Holy Sepulcher with the others, an invisible force thrust her back at the threshold. And this happened three or four times. Brought to sudden contrition by this strange experience, Mary prayed all night with tears to the Mother of God. The next morning, she found to her joy that she could enter the church without difficulty. After venerating the cross, she left Jerusalem on that same day, made her way over the Jordan, and settled as a solitary and remote region of the desert. Here for 47 years, she remained hidden from the world until she was eventually found by the ascetic, St. Zosimus, who was able to give her Holy Communion shortly before her death. Some modern writers have questioned the historical accuracy of St. Sophronius' narrative, but there is in itself nothing impossible about such a story. In fact, in the year in 1890, the Greek priest Joachim Setsirius found a woman hermit in the desert beyond the Jordan, living almost exactly as St. Mary must have done. Now, in this Sunday, the first canon in Matins is based on the story of the rich man in Lazarus from Luke chapter 16. Like the parable of the Good Samaritan on the previous Sunday, this is applied symbolically to the repentant Christian. As always, we glean so much from the liturgical calendar by actually looking at the liturgical text, in other words, the way that we pray. And here are some passages from the Vespers from this feast the Sunday of St. Mary of Egypt. The pollution of past ties thee from entering the church to see the elevation of the cross, but when the conscience and the awareness of thine actions turned thee, O wise in God, to a better way of life, and having looked upon the icon of the blessed maid of God, thou hast condemned all thy previous transgressions, O mother worthy of all praise, and so has gone with boldness to venerate the precious cross." O loving Lord, for our sakes, thou hast born of a virgin, and hast entered crucifixion, dispelling death by death, and as God, thou hast revealed the resurrection. Despise not thy handiwork, but show thy love for man, O merciful Lord. Accept the intercessions made on our behalf by the Theotokos who bore thee, and save, O our Savior, thy people from despair. Standing, O saint, before Christ, the light that no man can approach, send down light upon me, for with love I celebrate thy light giving and holy memory and keep me safe in the manifold temptations of life. The uncircumscribed and eternal Lord who after his incarnation dwelt among the people of Egypt who knows all things before they come into existence has brought thee as a shining star from Egypt. So these are just some of the passages, scriptural references and historical references that are part of the theological or dogmatic hymnody, in other words, the singing of dogma. That's what our chant is in the Eastern churches. We sing Scripture. We sing dogma. So as we sing, as we actually experience liturgy, we're, in a sense, not only proclaiming, but we're teaching ourselves at the same time. Liturgy is, by nature, very pedagogical. I mean, it's not the purpose of it, but by nature, it is that. Because you learn these things, you learn the theology, you learn the Scripture, you learn the history, you learn the spirituality by saying it, by doing it. By chanting and proclaiming it according to these wonderful texts from each feast day, from each service of the Eastern churches. Now, St. Mary of Egypt is, as always, relevant today. I mean, we do a lot of reading of her story, which is a great story. It's really a fascinating, very moving story that encounter of Zosimus and Mary of Egypt in the desert and how she begs him to bring Holy Communion to her. She hadn't had it in years because she went off to the desert. So the priest finds her and she begs him to bring her Holy Communion and then finally tells him to come back one year later. And that's when he finds her already having passed away. But she is at peace because she repented, she received the body and blood of Christ in her heart, and she became that bride of the bridegroom Christ. And that was her longing because, remember, her sin was the desire for love, for intimacy just gone awry in a disordered way. And so she who sold her body to men, and she did all kinds of things to manipulate the affection of men. But that was really down deep inside, as it is for all women, a desire, their ultimate desire, and for all men too, for all of us, desire for intimacy with God. So Mary Egypt is an example, first of all, of our deepest yearnings in life. Remember, these are great historical narratives, but they're also very, very relevant. And I can't stress that enough on our program, Light of the East, that the liturgical life of the church, although ancient and venerable, and lots of history to it, lots of narrative, is at the same time good for all times. It's timeless. It is relevant today. All we have to do is see it that way. It's one of the reasons why the church presents these figures before our eyes and draws us into their observance and their celebration through its liturgical life. mayor of Egypt demonstrates what our deepest yearning is, what the deepest yearning for every woman is, and that ultimately is intimacy with Christ. And that intimacy with Christ is, yes, it is experienced in different forms on earth, one of which, of course, is through loving relationship with a man, you know, marriage, but Of course, through sin, that desire can become disordered. It can go awry. And we see in Mary of Egypt that once she found the ultimate object of her longing, she became a different person, a purified person. In fact, even though she was a prostitute, we refer to her in our liturgical text as a virgin, which gives us another lesson from Mary of Egypt, that virginity, in a certain sense can be regained again. And I think that must be something that's very encouraging, especially for people today in our unfortunately overly and disorderly sexualized world. Many people regret the mistakes they've made in that area. It's something we actually look at, of course, during Lent and repent over. But we need not despair because with examples like Mary of Egypt, the way the church presents her, we can see that virginity can be regained in a different way. As I mentioned, the church calls Mary of Egypt, a former prostitute, a virgin. Another example of St. Mary of Egypt is it shows the power of repentance and also the power of the Eucharist and that our longing is for closeness with Christ and that comes through ultimately, ultimately through receiving his body and blood in the liturgy. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why we step back from the Eucharist, at least in the form of a consecration, the, the full, full liturgical experience of Eucharist during Lent. We still receive Eucharist at the presanctified liturgy during the week, but the reason we kind of step back from the full experience of Eucharist and Divine Liturgy is precisely because we are acknowledging that Eucharist, just like with Mayor of Egypt is our deepest longing. It satisfies our deepest longing for that intimacy with Christ. It's an it's an intimacy that happens physically and spiritually with our whole being. And so during the Lenten period, what we do in the Eastern churches is we step back from liturgy, step back from Eucharist to a certain degree, so as to prepare ourselves to re-enter it, re-approach it, like Mary of Egypt, only with a now a purified, a more purified heart, a greater, more genuine receptivity. We're going to talk more about this period of the great fast, the bright sadness, the period of Lent, when we return. I'm Father Thomas Leo on Light of the East. That's TaborLife.org. You're listening to Father Thomas Lawyer on Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host here on the fifth Sunday of Lent in the Byzantine Liturgical Calendar, the feast day of St. Mary of Egypt, the great penitent. And a great example for many aspects of, well, for all of us, male and female, but particularly for women in terms of their greatest longing and desire and how to fulfill that. And that, of course, lies in our intimacy with Jesus Christ. And in particular, intimacy by a worthy reception of the Eucharist. That's a big part of what we're doing during Lent. We're trying to make ourselves more worthy of the Eucharist, stepping back from it so as to prepare and reapproach it in a much more authentic way. I think it's very important in our world today. In fact, we had, of course, the year of the Eucharist a couple years ago, but this is now the year of faith. But I think that the Eucharist, our approach to that is something that has to be renewed constantly, constantly renewed. And the Lenten period, well, That's precisely one of its goals, one of its purposes. And that's why in the Eastern churches we step back from the Eucharist in order to prepare to reapproach it, as Mary of Egypt did. Just before the Feast of Mary of Egypt, this Sunday, we had what was called the Akathist Saturday, Akathistos, another way of pronouncing it, Akathistos Saturday, which is a beautiful prayer, beautiful service. It's in the context of matins to the Mother of God. Now, it has its roots in the celebration and the observance of the Annunciation, which oftentimes, of course, falls during the Lenten season. And it's a very, very important feast day, even during Lent in the Eastern Church's calendar. So we take a piece of that observance, the Akathist, and we put it on a special Saturday, which comes right before the Feast of St. Mary of Egypt. And the Akathist is a very poetic, very, very exemplary, poetic theological journey Again, through the scriptures, references, all the different kinds of references we can come up with through the scriptures that are prefigurations of the mother of God and beautiful references. And let me demonstrate some of those. We sing verses like this, hail tabernacle of God, the word, hail greater holy of holies, hail ark made golden by the spirit, hail never empty treasure house of life, hail precious crown of orthodox kings, hail honored boast of godly priests. Hail, unshaken forces of the church. Hail, unconquered rampart of the kingdom. Hail, for through thee the standards of victory are raised on high. Hail, for through thee our enemies are cast down. Hail, healing of my body. Hail, salvation of my soul. Hail, bride without bridegroom. And then the response to that is, Hail, O bride and maiden ever pure. There's various what we call stanzas or or odes during the matins service that are just like this very poetic, very theological, very scriptural. It's almost like, and this is very typical of Eastern prayer. It's like we can't find enough descriptions. We can't find enough words. It's like we're groping to see how many other ways can we describe gloriously the mother of God. That's very typical of the East. It's almost like we are almost tripping over ourselves, trying to find word after word, description after description. That's why sometimes our services are very elaborate and lengthy, very wordy, because we're searching, searching, like no word, no amount of word is enough to give worthy glory to God, to describe the Mother of God or God, the angels, the saints, the, the heavenly reality, salvation, history, the whole plan of salvation. We keep trying, groping in a sense, to find enough words. It never seems like it's enough, it never seems like it's adequate. So we repeat over and over again with. Very poetic, very deeply theological and scriptural, in a sense, meditations about the Mother of God. In this case, the Akathist. Beautiful, beautiful prayer. Now, we have something coming up at the end of this week, and that is Lazarus Saturday. And that marks the end of the Lenten period in the Byzantine calendar. That's right, Lent ends, although sometimes that confuses a lot of our Latin Rite brethren Lent ends in the Byzantine calendar on Lazarus Saturday, and Palm Sunday begins what we call Great Week, or Week of the Bridegroom, and we'll be talking about that next week. But the Week of the Bridegroom, also known as Holy Week, Great Week, that becomes a separate week in itself that is not a part of Lent. It is also a penitential week, and week that involves a lot of fasting, just like Lent, but it is not Lent per se. It's no longer the 40 days. It becomes its own special week in itself. So, the end of Lent comes on Lazarus Saturday, which, of course, we read the Gospel of Lazarus, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, let's refer once again to our guidebook here, the Lenten Trojan by Mother Mary and Clystis Ware. Lazarus Saturday, along with Palm Sunday, occupies a special position between Lent and Holy Week. Following the 40 days of penitence, which have just ended, and immediately before the days of darkness and mourning, which are the, to follow in the week of the Passion, there come two days of joy and triumph in which the church keeps festival. The Saturday before Palm Sunday celebrates the raising of Lazarus at Bethany. And this, of course, is read in John's Gospel, chapter 11. This miracle is performed by Christ as a reassurance to His disciples before the coming Passion. They are to understand that though He suffers and dies, yet He is Lord and victor over death. The resurrection of Lazarus is a prophecy in the form of an action. It foreshadows Christ's own resurrection eight days later, and at the same time it anticipates the resurrection of all the righteous on the last day. Lazarus is the saving first fruits of the regeneration of the world. As the liturgical text emphasized, the miracle of Bethany reveals the two natures of Christ, the God-man. Christ asked where Lazarus is laid and weeps for him. So he shows the fullness of his manhood, involving as it does human ignorance and genuine grief for a beloved friend. Then, disclosing the fullness of his divine power, Christ raises Lazarus from the dead, even though his corpse has already begun to decompose and stink. This double fullness of the Lord's divinity and his humanity is to be kept in view throughout Holy Week and above all on Great Friday. On the cross, we see a genuinely human agony, both physical and mental. But we see more than this. We see not only suffering man, but suffering God. Now, that phrase, suffering God, might kind of throw us a bit. Might say to ourselves, well, can God suffer? I mean, isn't God pure and happy and perfect? Well, we have to understand more deeply this word suffering. Suffering means to endure, to experience with. It doesn't necessarily mean that God himself is suffering in the way that he did in his human nature, the human nature on the cross suffered in a human way, but God suffers in his divine nature, Christ suffers in a way that is more like enduring, not that God can ever be unhappy or sad, of course. So it's more like an enduring. So we have suffering humanity and we have suffering God in two different kinds of ways. In the icon of the Feast of St. Lazarus, it's interesting because it really tries to hammer home this idea that Lazarus was indeed dead for several days. So that's a key thing. Lazarus was dead for several days. So this wasn't something like, well, he just fell asleep or he was in a coma or something. No, he was dead. He was in that tomb for several days. And in the icon, it shows The people who are witnessing this, some of them covering their noses to avoid, you know, the stench of a corpse who's been in the tomb for several days. That's another little proof that it's painted into the icons, that this Lazarus was truly dead, because that's key to the miracle. Jesus wasn't just raising somebody from a deep sleep or a coma. He was raising someone from the dead, anticipating his own resurrection as well as ours. And of course, as we heard, also showing his humanity. So it's a powerful feast day. And Lazarus Saturday is very significant for us in the Eastern Church, in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, because of this kind of the manifestation of the two natures of Christ, very definitively, but also the expectation, the destiny that we have as followers of Christ, that we one day be raised from the dead. Yes, our bodies will be raised from the dead. They will be reunited with our souls to be gloriously transfigured once again in heaven. If, of course, we make it to heaven. Heaven is not cheap. That's why we have seasons of the liturgical year like Lent, where we step back and really, really reflect on ourselves and break the tyranny of our sins and our passions increase our prayer our openness to God our quiet time divest ourselves of all that is extra and excessive that we think is just normal and when you step back from it you find out boy there's a lot of stuff that we do that we're hooked on that we really don't need It kind of gets in the way of our becoming our true Christ like selves so we step back open ourselves more to prayer so that we can become truly people of the resurrection. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's Reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road Homer Glen, Illinois 60491 That's Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W I L Dash C O O K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years.